Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 159. Life, death and sex in the Middle Ages. So, here we are, out of the Middle Ages. We have spoken of kings and dukes and counts and merchants and bankers and mercenaries and so on, but we haven't said a lot about the average Giuseppe, the average Lucrezia, the average man and woman on the street, in the fields, in the monasteries, and so on. The last time we had a look at the common folk was way back in episode 28, so it's definitely time we check back in with them. I'll be referring more or less to the period that goes from the late 11th to the early 15th century, but mostly the 14th in the middle. This is quite a long time, and not all of the information can refer to all of the period. After all, there is a lot of difference, for example, between the backwards town that was Florence in the 11th century and the Florence of Lorenzo the Magnificent, or between the malaria-ridden sheep-grazing area which was Rome in the 11th century and the Rome at the start of the Renaissance. Now, the best place to start talking about life in this period is with the start of life itself, birth and childhood. I know what you're thinking. What about conception? Are you going to just skip over the good sexy bits? Of course not. I'm just keeping them for later on to keep you hooked, like a good storyteller would, if I were one. So, the start of life was a pretty dangerous matter for both mother and child. More than 40% of women died before the age of 35, and childbirth was often the cause. This would occur at home with a midwife, if one could get there, and, of course, without sterile implements, possibility for blood transfusions or emergency surgery. If you add to this that the average number of pregnancies for women in some areas could reach 8 to 10, statistically, things became even more risky. Mind you, One very small consolation was that if you died young, you didn't have to worry about getting old. However, if you were one of the six out of ten women who made it past 35, you would start after some time, not at 35, let me make that very clear, to think about these things. You might if you were one of the few noble women who actually knew how to read, since nobles didn't really start to bother much with all that wishy-washy reading until about the 11th century, you might even get a copy of a book written by a woman from the southern Italian town of Salerno called Trotula de Ruggero. In her treatise De Ornato Mulierum, she wrote about how to stay unwrinkled, remove puffiness from the face and eyes, remove unwanted hair from the body, lighten the skin, hide blemishes and freckles, wash teeth, and take away bad breath. Going back to childbirth, if you did make it into the world, you then had a one in four chance of not making it past the first year. 
After that, your chances increased year by year, and by six you could consider yourself more or less in the clear. Then, of course, your childhood was over anyway, because by that time you could either work or slash at things with the sword. So you either went into the fields, the workshop, or were stuck on a horse if you were a noble and taught to ride, hunt, and especially fight. If you were a girl, you would learn housework or be sent off to work as a maid, or if your match has already been made, you would go off to live in the house of your future hubby. Now, all of that did not happen at exactly six, of course, but as girls headed to the ripe old age of 12 or 13. Then, of course, if you could find a place for your daughter, you could always send her to a convent. Now, that, of course, is if your parents actually were interested in keeping you. It was not rare to abandon, kill, or sell a child into slavery. The latter was actually the worst crime, as it was punishable by having your nose cut off or even being put to death whereas killing a baby meant you would have to pay penance by eating only bread and drinking only water for three years. Now, these punishments were indications that in society there were attempts to curve these phenomena and to try and help out. There were places willing to take abandoned children in, mostly religious institutions at the start, but later also locations set up by rulers such as the ospedali, an Italian word that we translate today as hospital, but were also for the poor, the elderly, or, case in point, abandoned children. At the start of the 13th century, Pope Innocent III even had a special system set up along the banks of the Tiber River to dissuade new mothers from throwing their babies in the river. You could anonymously put the baby in a wooden crib and then pull a lever, which would send the crib into a monastery and a bell would ring to warn the monks that a new soul had arrived there. Later, towards the end of the 13th century, the Ospedale del Brolo in Milan would host up to 350 abandoned or orphaned children, while when Brunelleschi completed his Ospedale degli Innocenti, the Hospital of the Innocent, in the early 15th century, that was the third to be completed in Florence. These children would be the ones labelled filius matris ignote, child of an unknown mother. Having touched upon hospitals and the elderly, before we look at what life was like, let's have a look at the end of it. Society was not particularly well-structured for the care of the elderly. Firstly, because not many people actually made it to old age. Even if you did, you were expected to remain a productive member of society as long as you possibly could, until you could no longer stand up or use tools. If you did reach the point when you were no longer useful, you could count on your family, obviously the women, to take care of you, or you could head off to a monastery or convent. Whether young or old, when your time came, you had to be ready and make sure you could confess your sins and get your soul in order. If you didn't have a priest at hand as you lay at death's door, the belief was that you could get away with looking at an image of St. Christopher. This was especially because the concept of purgatory only came around in the 13th century. Before that, it was either eternal bliss or eternal damnation with no chance of getting off for good behaviour or time served. You were there for eternity. 
a rather nasty thought, which is why the idea of purgatory did develop. A place that was still full of punishments and suffering, but which left a chance of hope for salvation. Purgatory was also seen as a place closer to the material world, where the souls placed there could communicate in various ways with the land of the living. If you happen to visit Rome, not too far along the river from Castel Sant'Angelo, moving away from St. Peter's, you can find the Mini Duomo of Milan, not in Milan, in Rome, obviously, the Church of the Sacred Heart or the Church of Suffrage. Inside, you can find a museum dedicated to the supposed traces of souls of purgatory in the real world, with objects such as books and wooden objects with fiery handprints. This new vision of death brought a new series of imagery, such as representations of macabre images such as skeletons and personifications of death. This was what came to be known as the Dance Macabre, the Dance of Death, an allegorical artistic genre starting up in the late 14th century that was supposed to serve the function of memento mori, reminding humanity of the fragility of life. In general, art and architecture in the Middle Ages had a lot more communicative purpose than it does today, at least on a practical level. It served to guide and teach the many people who did not know how to read. For example, if you were to this day to visit the baptistry in the city of Parma in the Emilia region, you could see all sorts of indications on what to do and what not to do to avoid going to hell. The fear of death also extended, of course, to beyond the grave. It was believed in particular that those who had died of a violent death would return with their bodies. So steps were taken to make sure the zombies could not cause any harm. These steps included chopping off their lower limbs so they could not walk back home, or more cunningly, burying them near crossroads so they would not manage to make their way back to the local village. Now, of course, one of the main causes of death in times of peace, which were not that common in Italy, were sicknesses and diseases, ranging all the way from a little infection to the plague. Although it was not really fair to call the Middle Ages the Dark Ages, as a lot of progress was made in different fields, not much was done in the way of medicine. The church did not permit autopsies or dissections since they saw it as a desecration of the body that the owner would need back on Judgment Day. So it was not until the studies of Leonardo da Vinci that people started to understand a bit more about the human body. They knew enough to think of analysing urine and faeces. Now, you may be wondering what we mean by analyse, since there were no medical labs around. That meant smelling, looking, and then at times, the use of other senses. Taste. Ugh. Apart from that, they were more or less stuck in the time of the ancient Greeks, such as Galenus and Hippocrates, and with their four humours of the body, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. We all know bloodletting, through leeches or cutting, was a thing to try to balance those humours. Bacteria would not actually be noticed until 1676, although it would not be until Pasteur that the connection would be made between bacteria and disease in 1860. 
Yersinia pestis, the course of the bubonic plague, would not be discovered until Alexander Yersin came along in the early 20th century. Viruses were not to be observed until 1940. All of this didn't really matter anyway until the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance because if you got sick it was probably your fault for doing something sinful and you were being punished by God and so you deserved it. Having painted this rather bleak picture, there were doctors in the Middle Ages. They did manage to help people out at times and there were even developments in the study of medicine. One location that became particularly well known for the study of medicine was the University of Salerno, southern Italy. We have seen here that the universities in various cities were founded in the late 11th and early 12th centuries. The University of Bologna, founded in 1088, claims to be the oldest. The spread of universities was in part to meet the need for new educated individuals for the new rising classes such as merchants, notaries, lawyers, professional politicians such as the podesta and professors. You could expect to start university around the age of 13, so Sheldon Cooper would have been nothing special. You would study the classical trivium, that is grammar, logic and rhetoric, and the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music and astronomy. After that, you could go on to study and become a magister or a doctor in a specific field. The studies would have been done on actual paper books by the 13th century since paper had been introduced to Sicily by the Arabs starting in the 11th century. Indeed, the first paper document we are aware of in Italy belonged to the Countess Adelasia, first wife of the Norman king Roger I of Sicily and dated back to 1109. Although you could study on paper books, they would have been, of course, copied out by scribes and not yet printed, since Gutenberg would not publish his first Bible until February of 1455. As well as paper, the Arabs had also brought the system of numerals that we use today for maths. But although they had introduced them as early as the late 10th century, they were initially only used in monasteries, and were introduced to civil society in the early 13th century by a certain Leonardo Pisano, also known as Fibonacci. If you had trouble reading your books due to bad eyesight, you would have been out of luck until the early 14th century when the first experiments with lenses and glasses started up, although it was a while before anything functional and useful came along. To show once again that although we humans change, we also stay the same in many ways, university cities often complained of the bad behaviour of students getting drunk and brawling in the streets. As well as the stereotype of the drunken student, an inhabitant of the Italian peninsula was likely to believe that the French were effeminate, the Sicilians tyrannical, the English heavy drinkers, the Romans seditious, Breton stupid, and Lombards cheap. However, no matter whether you were a student, worker, lawyer, ruler, Italian, foreign, or tyrannical Sicilian, you would all have been subject to the same great tyrant we are still subject to today, time. 
The day, and consequently the work activities, were determined, of course, by sunlight. So the day ended with the sunset. The day was divided, according to Roman use, into daylight hours, the ore, and the nighttime hours, the vigilie, in groups of three, starting, interestingly, from sunset. If today you have the pleasure of visiting St. Peter's and look and look up at the basilica, you will see two clocks. The one on the right still keeps Roman or Italic time. The question now is, how on earth did anyone know what time it was, since clocks were not common until the 13th century and watches were out of the question? Well, bells. Starting from the monasteries and churches, where incidentally you could expect to have the first session of prayers at 3am, and then in civil buildings, when the communes and merchant class came to prominence, the bells in the towers told everyone when it was time to start work, stop work, go to church, when someone had died, when there was a celebration, when there was danger, and so on. Different bells for different purposes, and the citizens were familiar with the different sounds. Many of the bells even had their own names. Whether you knew what time it was or not, more or less, if you could see, it was time to work, which you could expect to do for around 11 hours. There was no 8 hours work, 8 hours play, and 8 hours sleep in the Middle Ages. Also, no Netflix binging to turn the 8 hours sleep into 7, then 6, and so on. I'll just watch one more. What little time they did have to play, they used more often than a lot to play dice. One game in particular, Zara, was based on rolling dice against an opponent and both players making guesses on the outcome. This game often involved betting, which was severely frowned upon by the church. Then, of course, there was the good old sitting around and sharing news and telling stories. This would have been around a brazier, not to be confused with brazier, a container holding fire which would make the room very smoky and would probably not manage to reach the damp corners of the large room which would have doubled as living room and bedroom. Starting with the 14th century, if you were better off, you may also have had a real fireplace in your house. Cards would have come along at the end of the 14th century. If you were rich, you might have a chess set a game also imported by the Arabs as early as the 8th century, with some Western changes. Our bishop would have started life out as an elephant, the rook, a camel, and the queen, a vizier. No women on their chessboards, thank you very much. Holidays were out of the question, which is why religious festivities and local fairs and markets were such a big thing. If people did travel, it was more often than not to trade or to go on pilgrimage. Now there, were various, now, there were various destinations you could go for a pilgrimage, Rome being one of the most obvious, but there were also other sanctuaries and churches and monasteries where certain important relics could be found and visited, bringing also money to the local economy. Travelling was not an endeavour to start off on lightly no last-minute weekends in the Middle Ages. One of the first things you would do is, if you had any sort of property worth anything, was to write a will, because there was no absolute guarantee that you would make it back. The bandits that plagued the forests and countrysides would have been a common cause 
of issue and even death on the road. Then, of course, natural disasters, getting caught up in a conflict, and a bout of dysentery or malaria could also finish you off. To find your way, you would have followed the position of the sun during the day and the stars at night, at least until the 12th century when compasses started to come into use. Along the way, of course, you could find places to stay, such as the aforementioned ospedali, which again were not just hospitals as we see them today, or monasteries, towns, and so on. Here, you found a place to stay for the night and, of course, some nourishment. The division of the type of food eaten between rich and poor increased after the year 1000 and the, with the increasing population. By the later Middle Ages, game meat and mutton were more a prerogative of the rich, with the poorer people eating meat only a couple of times a week and mostly in a stew. The belief that spices were used to cover up the taste of bad meat is not actually true. Indeed, rich people used spices more or less to show off rather than to hide any taste. The cost of spices could increase up to 40 times when they arrived in Italy from the east, which is why you had so many spice merchants in the Middle Ages. It was a very lucrative business. These spices included nutmeg, pepper, and saffron. The latter is actually really expensive today. In my local supermarket, you have to go and ask for the saffron and they bring it out from the offices because apparently it is the most stolen item in Italian supermarkets. One, of course, could do without, but then one could not prepare risotto alla milanese. The diet would have been in part what we know today as the Mediterranean diet. Cheese, some vegetables, olives and olive oil, bread, but not tomatoes, which only came around when the new world was discovered. Therefore, the lovely red sauce that is the basis for many dishes that are now considered quintessentially Italian did not exist in the Middle Ages. We Italians take our food very seriously, just as historians will get over-obsessive and fussy about historical accuracy. So, when I was asked to host an interview with an author who had a late 13th century Sicilian mopping up tomato sauce with a piece of bread, I refused. I have also seen, I have also seen on social media that there seems to be a debate in the United States about the difference between sauce and gravy. This is not an issue in Italy, as no one knows what gravy is. The topic of sauce, of course, brings us to pasta. It actually has an antique origin and was known to the Persians, ancient Greeks, Etruscans, and Romans. When the Western Roman Empire fell, the inhabitants of the Italian peninsula sort of forgot about pasta for a few centuries, what with the greater difficulty in getting a good harvest and the barbarians bringing in their piggies and pork-based diet. Once again, it was the Arabs who helped out by bringing pasta back to Sicily, the grain basket of Italy from where pasta started to be exported to the rest of the peninsula again. There were also early examples of longer pasta which could be seen as a proto-spaghetti, but tradition dictates that it was Marco Polo returning from the voyage to the Orient that brought back long noodle-like pasta and made it popular, although the lower classes would have to wait a few more centuries to have more frequent access to pasta. 
The longer pasta also meant that you needed a suitable utensil to eat it, and so starting in the 14th century, the fork, which had been until then mostly a cooking utensil, started to become more frequent on tables. Whether you were cooking, working, traveling, praying, fighting, or whatever, at a certain point, you had to sleep. Unless you were out and about, you would sleep in the bedroom, which, as we mentioned, doubled as a living room. First of all, you would take off all of your clothes and hang them on a pole so that mice and other creepy crawlies could not burrow into them. That was it. No pyjamas. Just stark naked in bed. This in itself was not necessarily an uncomfortable business, but beds were very large and very crowded. They could be up to three and a half meters, both in length and in width, and would often be used not only by the husband and wife, but also by the children, the servants, if there were any, and even guests if they happened by. That obviously didn't allow for much intimacy. But intimacy was a little less of an issue at a time when wedding nights could be capped off by the guests carrying the bride and groom to bed and then cheering them on as they consummated the marriage. Anyway, we've gotten to the good part, the sex. So the first question is this. In a period in which the church dominated much of public and private life, were you allowed to do it? Well, yes, of course you were with your legitimate spouse to have lots of babies. Then there was the question of timing, determined both by physiological as well as liturgical issues. You were not allowed to do it during the woman's menstrual cycle, during the last two months of pregnancy, in the 40 days after giving birth, and during the period of breastfeeding. You were not allowed on Sundays, during the religious holidays, the feast days of apostles, and all the evenings before the religious holidays and feast days of apostles, during Lent and the 12 days before Christmas. That didn't really leave much of the rest of the year free. That was the issue of time, and then there was the issue of space, or better, position. You were okay with the missionary, could get away with being side by side, but then it was all a no-no. Cowgirl, Standing, and Doggy were all out of the question. Also out of the question were relations with brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, homosexuality, animals, and trees. Incidentally, attraction to trees is known as dendrophilia. That must have been a thing, for Abbot Odo of Cluny, in his long list of prohibited sexual behavior, went out of his way to prohibit the use of wooden cavities for pleasure. It goes without saying that sex toys, which had been around since antiquity, were condemned. Interestingly, Italy, where the church had its headquarters, seems to have been one of the most prolific areas for the production of sex toys in the Middle Ages. The church furthermore went on to condemn practices that I'm sure they completely made up. For example, Women were not supposed to lie down with their bum cheeks exposed, had bread made on them, and then serve the bread to their husbands to make them stay in love with them. There was also a whole other thing involving fish, but I'm not even going to start down that road. So, with this talk of prohibition and condemnation, one wonders what the consequences were. Well, first of all, they had to catch you, which, of course, was not easy. 
But we must remember, first of all, the lack of intimacy in the Middle Ages, and secondly, we mustn't underestimate how much the fear of damnation weighed on consciences. If you did go along and confess your naughty bedroom no-nos, the priests or monk in question could consult a penitenziale, a reference text for punishments. We can find some examples in the text of Buchard of Worms. Having intercourse during the woman's period could get you 10 days on bread and water, and you could get the same for doggy style. Doing it on Sunday, four days. During Lent got you a whole 40 days, or if just the thought of that made you hungry, you could get off by paying 26 solidi to the poor. So, that is a little of an insight into what life would have been like in the Middle Ages. You had to be pretty lucky to make it and have a good life. It reminds me of a conversation I had recently with a tour guide to a local castle. She was trying to convince us all how much better things had been in the late Middle Ages when the castle had been built. She seemed to have a major cross on one of the lords of the castle, a Torelli. She actually said she couldn't wait to go to heaven to talk to him. Anyway, the point she was making was that the Middle Ages were better off because they didn't have Covid. I obviously seemed to never have the option of just keeping quiet, so I said, well what about the plague? To which she answered, ah well, it would have taken them less to get through it. To which I answered, well yes, of course, they would have been dead. I don't think I was her favourite tourist that day. Well, that episode puts a cap on our Middle Ages. There is a recap left, of course, to give you a little bit of a reminder, but then it's off to the mountains for me to do some studying for phase two of the podcast. Incidentally, if you're looking for a lovely property in the Apennines between Emilia and Tuscany, with plenty of land next to a river you can swim in, in a restructured stone water mill from the late 19th century, that still has plenty of room for you DIY lovers to work on, we are selling. Just putting that out there, get in touch if you're interested. Instead, together, we will be heading into the modern ages and the Italian wars. See you there. Thank you very, very much for listening. Stay tuned for the sketch after the credits and outro music. Remember, if you'd like to get in touch with questions, comments, or encouragement, why not? You can do so. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. You can also get in touch via social media, Twitter, Instagram, or on Facebook. You can find everything at the website ahistoryofitaly.com. There, you can also find the support page, where, with a house restriction coming up, now is a really, really good time to support the podcast if you were thinking about doing it. On the support page, you can click through and become a Patreon, or you can donate on PayPal, and soon you'll also be able to support us on Tippy if you want to. Whatever you decide to do, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci.
Dear Lord, please forgive me, for I have sinned against you. What do you wish to confess, my child? Dear God, is that really you? You have never spoken to me directly before. Well, you're always calling me, and I was on a break, so I thought I'd take your call for once. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What an honor. What a real gift. I'm so privileged to behold you. Yes, yes. Don't mention it. What's up? Ah, yes. I must confess my sins and feed on only bread and water or face eternal damnation. Oh, don't get all panicky about that. I see all and I haven't seen you do anything naughty in my sight. But, my lord, I lay with my wife on your day, on a Sunday. So that's a great way to spend a Sunday. But the priest said... Look, those guys mean well, but they do tend to get a little over-enthusiastic. But we, um, changed positions. Like what? Well, the dog and the aardvark and the gliding platypus and the sitting seagull and the uh, rampant guinea pig. Huh. I should have been paying more attention to you guys. Anyway, take it easy. As long as you and your lady love each other and are enjoying yourselves and don't feel uncomfortable, even with the rampant guinea pig, then you're fine. But all the rules and punishments... Listen... I try to get through to all of my children in ways they will understand. You guys on that side of the world really liked when my son, which was still me, came down and taught you what to do, and his friends wrote down a manual. Just follow that for my sake. Just love each other and be nice and help out the poor and embrace those that are different and forgive and all that stuff. Especially stop hating each other just because you're a little different. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I can do that. There's just one more thing. Now what? Well, um, there's this tree in the woods. Well, I should hope so. There should be a lot of them there. No, it's just that there's this one. I call her Sandra. I, I really love her. What's not to love? Trees are one of my best creations. Get this, in your future, uh, at least I think it's your future, have you guys done the printing press yet? Well, anyway, there's this guy, Joyce Kilmer, who wrote a poem. It goes, I think that I shall never see a poem no, as... No, no, no. I mean, I love her. Ah. Uh, okay. I really should have thought this whole free will business through. Anyway, um, well, just just beware of splinters. Yes, Lord. A and one more thing. Yes? Well, they say you created us I in your own image, and I can't really see you because of all the, you know, holy light, but you seem less human and more rounded, like some kind of vegetable? Maybe you'd like a... That is enough! Sentire Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. 
and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.